Hey guys, welcome into the Faithful to the End podcast. We're so glad you've decided to join us today. Here you'll find easy access to all of Pastor Dave's sermons and even guest speakers at Graceway Church of Michiana. At Graceway Church of Michiana, we preach expositionally through the scriptures as we feel this is most consistent with the author's original intent in writing and yields both biblically and contextually accurate interpretations. At this time, we would invite you to grab your Bibles as we dig in to the Word of God. Dr. Larry Crabb recalls an incident in church that he was attending as a young man. It was customary in their church uh, when they would celebrate the Lord's table together for individuals within the congregation to at some point stand and pray. It was voluntary. It was not required. It was not planned. And so one day, out of compulsion, as a young man, he, he felt this need, this stir that he needed to stand and pray. And yet, there was this problem he had. He, he had a terrible issue with stuttering when he was young. And so he stood to pray, and he, he gave out this confused, just to him, terrible prayer, which went something like this. Thanking the Father for hanging on the cross and praising Christ for, the triumph, for triumphantly bringing the Spirit from the grave, which if you know anything about doctrine, if you know anything about your Bible, that prayer is pretty confused, right? I mean, he's got some things turned sideways and upside down there. Well, he, he was absolutely mortified. He, he sat down and in his, in his own mind and heart, he said, I'm never doing that again, ever. At the close of the service, uh, the, the thing that, that struck him most was, i got to get to an exit and get out of here. I don't want to talk to any of the elders or pastors because I don't want them to correct how, how horribly I prayed and how terrible my doctrine was. So as he was fleeing to an exit, there was one older gentleman that caught him. His name was Jim. He grabbed him and he, and he, he was prepared for whatever was going to come from Jim, the rebuke or correction. But instead, this is what Jim said to him. He said, Larry, there's one thing I want you to know. Whatever you do for the Lord, I'm behind you 1,000%. And the truth is, what that older gentleman saw was a young man who was willing, who was desiring for God to work in his life. And as he writes even this illustration, he says in his book, I still can't repeat this without getting choked up a little bit, and this was years and years and years ago. And the reason is this, because encouragement can be a powerful motivator, and that is exactly what the preacher is going to do. Now, initially, as we read this account, this encouragement is going to follow a pretty severe warning. But there is encouragement. He starts with the application, verses 19 to 25. He's going to give us the encouragement after the warning. And so we'll look at that warning first. As we walk through this today, this is what I want you to grasp with me together as we look at God's word. All the promises of God will be yours as you endure and obediently do his will. All of God's promises will be yours. As you endure. This is the message of Hebrews. Now, 
remember, as we began this book, we kind of introduced it and gave kind of an overview of what this book is about. Remember, Hebrews is a very unique book among the epistles of the New Testament. The epistles, obviously, these are the letters that are written to various congregations, various groups of believers. This particular group of believers is characterized by being Jewish. They are Jewish believers. And some of them are genuinely struggling with what will the difference really be if I go back to Judaism and depart from following Jesus, at least following him as formally as I'm currently doing. That's the temptation. That's the struggle. And that's what the preacher in Hebrews, that's what he's trying to address throughout this letter. So the letter is set up in many ways as a sermon. This is a first century sermon that the preacher is saying, hey, listen, this is what I'm calling you to do as a congregation. And we'll look at that at the end of the book. I actually, this is, this is fascinating, but he actually talks about the length of his sermon. There's a lot of good application that we can make there, but we won't do that today. We'll get there in a few weeks. The theme of the entire book is that Jesus is supreme. He's far better than angels. He's better than any priest. He's better than Moses. He's better than the old covenant system or any old covenant ritual. And therefore, because of that, what he says is, believers, if you know Jesus, that's you and me, believers, we must cling to the actual hope that is found in Christ by faith and encourage each other to do exactly the same thing. Uh, remember, this is something that's come up over and over again. It came up last week. The power of the community of believers to help you and I faithfully endure. We need each other, right? This is the message of the preacher in Hebrews. So our passage again, it continues the application of Jesus as our great high priest but now focuses on two things. The warning of departing, of rejecting, denying Jesus, and it concludes with the encouragement to faithfully endure, to faithfully persevere. So again, as we walk through this, this is what we're going to catch. Note this. Grab this. All the promises of God will be yours as you endure. And obediently do the will of God. Of God. So two things we're going to look at. Number one, the warning, the reality of coming judgment. This is true whether you are a believer or an unbeliever. You will stand before God and give account. You will stand before God and give account for the manner in which you've lived. If you are a believer for how you've stewarded your life in essence. And if you are an unbeliever for the sins that you have committed and are not covered. And that will be all of them. So this is the issue, the accounting before God. How do we deal with that sin? And folks, the the truth is we live in a day where there's all kinds of perceptions about how we deal with sin. Depending on your background, depending on your upbringing, depending on who you engage with, many, 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 many people, most religions, the idea exists that if your good outweighs your bad, well, then you're going to be fine. But folks, the reality is that's not what the Bible tells us. That's not what the author of Hebrews tells us. The truth is the Bible clearly explains to us that if 
we sin. James tells us if we offend in one point, we're guilty of all. We're guilty of breaking all of God's law. One sin makes me a sinner and makes me guilty before God. And there's nothing I can do to fix that. That's why the ministry of Jesus is so significant. That's why this high priestly work of Jesus, which really focuses primarily on his sacrifice, that's why it's so important. The sacrifice of Jesus alone can make you right with God. That's it. If you've accepted the work, then you're right with God. If you haven't, it doesn't matter how good you are. You can't be right. Jesus is the only one that can make us right with God. This is the theme. And so this theme is going to in some ways come out because of the reality of judgment. Because of the reality that we'll all stand before God. Now, remember the truths that are introduced to us last week. Draw near to God. This is the application. Remember, draw near to God. Cling to your confession of Faith. Confession of faith in what? Confession of faith in Jesus. Confession of faith that Jesus is the only way. Confession of faith that Jesus is the only one that can take your sin and you get his righteousness and now you have right standing with God. That's the only way. Right? So cling to your faith. And the last challenge that we looked at last week is to stir one another up. So now he turns to this warning. Verse 26 and 27. It begins with this conditional statement. And you can see that. For if, if we go on sinning. Now, a couple of things are important for us to understand. And we've tried to clarify this in every single one of the warnings. You know, as we look at this warning, it appears as if he's speaking generally of sin. Right? If you go on sinning at all. Well, the truth is, we know that can't be what he's describing. And the reason is this, because all of us go on sinning for the entirety of our existence, right? John tells us that. First John chapter 2 and verse 2. If anybody does sin, what do we have? A propitiation. There is this satisfaction for my sin before God. What is it? Jesus. Jesus Christ, the righteous, Right? So this is why, this is how my standing is established with God. It's only on the merits of Jesus and his work. So the sin here is not talking about sin generally. It's talking very specifically instead of rejecting or denying Jesus. It's a rejection. It's a refusal uh, it, it's a denial. I, I don't want that. That's not the truth. That's not the way. I, I'm not going to accept that. And, and here's the reality. At times, Christians, believers, are accused of being too narrow in their focus. And, and in truth, if God had made it clear that there were many ways to get to Him, well, then we would be too narrow. But here's the reality. According to Hebrews, according to the Gospel of John, according to John's epistles, according to Paul's epistles, listen, there is only one. There's only one way. It's Jesus. You go through Jesus or you don't go. Right? That, that's the truth. 
And that's exactly what the author of Hebrews is addressing. You can deny that Jesus is the way, but when you do, that's, that's the warning. You're in trouble if you deny, reject Jesus. That's the issue that he is addressing. So that's the specific sin. Now, one author makes a very interesting observation, and I think that this is true. The pastor is speaking to some extent of a laxity, a drifting, a neglect of both spiritual things and of the Christian community. And he's warning the believers, he's warning the hearers of this, because there is this lifestyle, there is this mentality that I, I know the Lord, or, or I've grown up in the Christian world, or I went to a certain school, or I was raised in a certain church, or whatever the case may be. All of us have these pieces that we stick in our mind and say, well, I have this. I know this, or I know this person. Here's the reality. None of that holds any weight before God. The only thing that holds any weight before God is Jesus. And so there is this sense, this intensity to this warning that, listen, don't take this for granted. Don't take this work of Jesus for granted and act like, ah, oh, it's not that big of a deal. It doesn't matter that much. No, 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 no. Jesus and his work is everything for you and for me. There's nothing that matters more. There's nothing that's more significant. So once we come to Jesus, we have to understand all that is at stake. And we can't lay that aside. The reality is we can reject or deny Jesus by the way that we live. Our, our living, our Action can be a denial, can be a rejection. This is a hard and sobering truth. It is. But to be honest with you, to not stand here and say it this morning would be a rejection on my part of what this actually says. What the preacher is warning about is the seriousness of maintaining your walk with Jesus and maintaining your relationship with the body. This is important. And that's what the preacher is trying to jar this audience into realizing. The sin of rejecting, denying Jesus, this brings about three stated consequences or, or three results. Look at what he says there at the end of verse 26. So you go on sinning deliberately. Now remember, what is that deliberate sin? It's a denial. It's a rejection. No, this isn't for me. No, I don't have to take part. No, I don't have to be involved. It's that. I'm sticking to that, right? I'm deliberately doing it. So after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there, is no, long, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Now, so three things that he gives us here that are kind of a result. There's no more sacrifice for sins. Now, initially when we read that, there's almost this sense in which, so God is going to take away the sacrifice. No, that, that's, that's not the case. At least that's not the heart of the author of Hebrews. The, the idea that the author of Hebrews is giving, the idea that the author of Hebrews is suggesting is this. 
When somebody decides, I don't want Jesus. When somebody decides, he's not the way. Well, there isn't a sacrifice for their sins because they've rejected the sacrifice. They said, no. No, he's not the answer. No, he's not God's plan. And therefore, because they've rejected the offer, well, there isn't a sacrifice for their sins. There's no payment for their sins. There's no covering for their sins. They've rejected it. They've, They've decided that's not for them, in a sense. And so because they've rejected it, that sacrifice doesn't have any effect. It's not effective because it's rejected. Folks, we've all heard this a thousand times, right? It's like getting a gift. How do you get a gift? Somebody can buy you a gift, but if if when they approach you and they say, here's this gift, you say, I don't want it. You know, I I don't want that gift. Set Set it back there, right? And a week later, we come back, and there's the gift. You say to the person, look, you got a gift. You know, who cares? Even if you don't, even if it's not your favorite thing, you got a gift, right? You don't even know what it is. Open it up. No, I don't want the gift. It goes on for weeks and weeks and weeks. No, I don't want the gift. I don't want the gift. I'm not going to take the gift. And eventually, the person comes, they take their gift back. Did you get the gift? No. It wasn't, didn't have any effect because you didn't take it. That's exactly the idea. This sacrifice is available if you will accept it, but it doesn't have any impact. It has no effect if you won't accept it, if you won't respond in faith to it. The self-sacrifice of Jesus, this is the only thing that is sufficient to cover, to pay for sin. So if you reject it, if you deny it, in essence, you are repudiating this sacrifice for your sins. And that's why it's so serious. You understand? If I say the very means through which my sins can be suffered, no, I don't believe that. No, I don't want that. No, I'm not going to accept it. Well, you understand it's not going to do anything for you then. It doesn't help you. It doesn't cover you. Right? He goes on, the second one. A fearful judgment awaits the one who rejects. A fearful judgment awaits the one who denies Jesus. Rather than this blessed hope that can be yours, that is anticipated by genuine believers, you have a fearful judgment that awaits. So the call again is to acknowledge, to accept what Jesus has accomplished. None of of it will matter on judgment day. Because you've denied, you've rejected Jesus and the sacrifice that was available to you. The last one, the third one, the fury of fire will consume the adversaries. Rejecting, repudiating Jesus is exactly like those in Israel who denied Jesus by going after idols, by being involved in idolatry. Turning away from Jesus and rejecting him will result in the exact same thing, the exact same kind of punishment. You, in essence, become the adversary of God and you will face the fury of judgment. You will face the wrath of God. The the truth is, the truth is, we understand these concepts. 
I illustrated this for you a couple weeks ago with my son walking into my office even though the door was closed and bringing a buddy along with him. If another third grade boy walks into my room without my son, I say, whoa, what's, what's up? Why are you here? Think about the same thing. Think about the same kind of transgression at your house. If those same two boys are playing ball in your backyard and they throw the ball through the window, what do you say? Well, you might not be happy, but your response is probably going to be very different than to the neighborhood boy that you don't know and just randomly walks by and throws a baseball through your window. You're like, hey, little kid, go back here. Where's your mom and dad? Right? You don't say that if it's your son and his friend. You say, boys, boys, don't play facing the house. Play this way, not this way. Right? But, but your response is very different. Why? Because of the relationship. This is the reality of accepting Jesus. You now have a relationship with God because of Jesus, on the merits of Christ. This is the reality. But if you reject, if you deny, you don't have that relationship. And now, not only don't you have the relationship, you are now the adversary. You, are, you have now become an enemy. You are in opposition. And, and the truth is this, Romans tells us this. Before we come to Jesus, we are his enemy. Why? Because, before we come to Jesus, we are the enemy of God. Why? Because of our sin. Our sin is an affront to God. And because of our sin, we are at enmity with Him. Right? Now, the preacher is going to illustrate this. And he illustrates this in verse 28 and 29 by going back to the Old Covenant. Now, he goes back to the Old Covenant to give us this illustration like this. Here's a lesser issue. Here's a greater issue. Or the greater issue is kind of the application of this lesser. The lesser issue is the... Law of Moses and the denial of the law of Moses, the rejection of the law of Moses. And how do you reject the law of Moses? You follow after idols. You chase idols. You go after idols. And when you go after idols, two or three witnesses can come before those that are in charge and they say, yeah, this guy's an idol worshiper. And because of those two or three witnesses, you are condemned. You are guilty based on the testimony of the witnesses. Well, in essence, it is idolatry. Choosing the idol over God, that is a rejection of God. This is exactly, this is exactly what he's describing in verse 29. When you deny, when you reject Jesus, how much greater, how much more significant is your rejection when you reject the very Son of God who gave his life for you. In essence, what are you doing? He goes on and he describes it in verse 29. Look at what he says. You're going you're gonna to deserve so much greater punishment. Why? Because you trampled underfoot the Son of God. You profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified or by which you are sanctified. And notice... Here, the preacher, he goes into this very general sense. He's, he's talking about somebody. In, in essence, for this audience, they may know somebody who has denied, who has left. And, and, and the preacher saying that what this person has done is this. 
They're actually trampling on the Son of God. They're profaning the blood. And they actually have outraged the Spirit of grace. Now, three things that are fascinating here. Number one, this apostasy, this this one who denies, who rejects, they are responding in exactly the opposite way of God. Now, think about this. What has God done with Jesus? He's exalted him. Right? He set him up at the right hand. So he's given him this exalted place. And if, if we deny him, if we reject him, in essence, we're trampling him underfoot. Now, the other interesting piece is what will ultimately happen to the enemies of Jesus? They are going to be trampled under his foot. So the preacher's turning all of that on its head and saying, listen, if you deny, if you reject Jesus, you're doing exactly what God has not done to the Son, but will ultimately do to all the Son's enemies. And there will be a consequence for it. The second thing is they're profaning the blood. They're treating the self-sacrifice of Jesus as if it has no real significance, no real effect. In essence, they're treating it as common. Now again, both of these are intended to shock the hearer. They're intended to jar the hearer and say, oh, whoa, whoa, we don't want to do that. We we don't want to be guilty of trampling the Son of God. We don't want to be guilty of, of shaming the blood of this covenant. And that's why he puts it this way. The third one, though, is insulting the Spirit of God. Now here's what's interesting. In some ways, if you recall... The author of Hebrews doesn't bring the Holy Spirit up very often. But when he does, he brings the Holy Spirit up as being a partaker in this work with Christ. And therefore, a rejection, a denial of Christ carries with it a rejection. A denial of the very presence of God. It's as if the one who denies or rejects is saying, God, I don't want you in my life. I don't want your work. I don't want your control. I don't want your help. I don't want your grace. Now again, this is a sobering reality that the preacher is trying to confront with these believers. Insult here carries the idea of hubris. This is an arrogant pride that disdains the very person, the very one that God has given to administer his grace to us. You are in essence saying, no, God, I don't want your grace. I don't want your help. It's not for me. That's a sobering thought. And that's exactly what the preacher is confronting his audience with. The three of these describe this climax climax of, of unchecked neglect laxity towards Jesus and towards his work. And the preacher is is by no means accusing these hearers of having gone too far. And here's how we know that. Because when when somebody goes too far, guess what these warnings are? They, They don't matter. They fall on deaf ears. If I've gone too far, if I've rejected, if I've denied, I hear this and I say, who cares? That doesn't have any impact on me. That has no bearing in my life. It's not going to matter. I don't believe that. So the warnings here are given because the preacher doesn't think that these 
believers have gone too far. The fact that the warning rings home means that they have not yet denied, they have not yet rejected, and this is why this is a warning. Be careful that you don't. Be careful that you don't. The preacher then quotes uh, Deuteronomy in verse 30, Deuteronomy 32, 35. And then in, in verse, the rest of verse 30, he quotes verse 36. The initial warning is directed at pagan nations that, that rejected God. The reality is pagan nations, they say, no, God isn't for me. No, I'm not going to follow God. No, I don't care who your God is, Israel, and I don't care what he's done for you. He's not for me. And to that, God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. There will be a consequence for rejecting God. It's the reality. You don't have to agree with that. You don't have to like that. But the truth is, you deny, reject Jesus, there will be a day of reckoning. At the end of verse 30, he gives us that second quote, the Lord will judge his people. Now here's the idea of this second one. The second one is actually a quote to God's people as a means of encouragement. It's about the faithfulness of God to his people. In essence, there's hope. There's hope in this passage for this reason. If you will faithfully persevere, all those who oppose you, all those who reject, one day when they stand before God, God will set that right. God will address that rejection. God will address that issue. And he concludes in verse 31 with this awesome vision of God, this vision of his power. There is real, real terror that will be experienced for those who have to stand before God in judgment. When they realize that there's no escape, all will helplessly stand before the creator, the sovereign of the universe. And maybe for some realize for the very first time who he is and all that he has accomplished and what truly was available to them. Now, this message is by no means intended to cause these believers to despair. Instead, it's an urgent exhortation to grab a hold of the hope that you have in Jesus. Rejoice in that. Cling to that. Because there is hope in Him. And He's going to transition from that. He's going to transition from this warning. This, this be careful. He's going to transition now to guidance. And the guidance is this, and I want you to catch this. I don't often tell you my points, what they are, but this one I think is helpful. So grab this if you would. Your past faithfulness should encourage your present perseverance. That's exactly the rest of the chapter. The encouragement is, listen, you've been faithful in the past. Remember that faithfulness. And now, right now, continue to persevere. Keep going. Keep going. This is his plea. So he begins with the encouragement of the things that they've done in the past. And look at all of these things that he offers up. He says, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. And sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your own property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. He, in essence, lists all the things that they've endured in the past for the sake of following Jesus. Public ridicule, public persecution, 
abuse. You've had compassion on people that were actually thrown into jail for following Jesus. You had your own things confiscated. Can you imagine that in 21st century America? Somebody coming into your house because you're a believer and just pillaging your stuff. I want that, I want that, I want that. And they leave with it. And there's nothing you can do. Nothing. Because the authorities that be are on their side, not yours. So they just take your stuff and walk out. Can you fathom that? No, you can't as an American. Truly, you can't. Like, it, it doesn't even make sense. If somebody did that at your house, you'd, you'd scold them. Some of you, if you have a weapon, you'd pull it out. Some of you, you'd call the police, right? You would do something. Because you're not allowed to do that. And, and the preacher literally says, you, you've endured that with grace. They've stolen your, your possessions. And you've taken it. Why? Because you understood that there's a greater possession, there's a greater reward that can't be stolen from you. It's eternity with Jesus. It's eternity in the presence of God. And so because of that, you've endured. He goes on in verse 35 and he calls them to continue to be bold, continue to have confidence. Look what he says. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, your boldness, which has great reward. The great reward is speaking again of eternal reward. Listen, everything that you have, it's not about here. It's not about now. It's eternal. So don't lose your confidence. Don't lose your boldness here because it feels like you're losing what matters here. What matters is to come. Verse 36, he continues again. And he says, for you have need of endurance so that, so that, you need to endure so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Listen, as you obediently do the will of God, you will enjoy all the promises God has made to you. Everything God has promised will be yours as you faithfully endure. And you know what? Many times for us, even as believers in 21st century America, we struggle... We struggle to be faithful. We struggle to endure because when we suffer, when we face hardship, we think in our minds, how is this fair? This isn't right. I, I shouldn't have to face this. I shouldn't have to endure this. I shouldn't have to go through this. Why am I experiencing this? And yet, the author of Hebrews says, no, listen, endure. Keep on. Keep going. Endure. And as you endure, as you are faithfully committed to doing the will of God, you will enjoy every promise He's given. And listen, some of us are so diligently pressing back on our suffering that we're missing out on the promise of God. We're so fixed on, I wish my suffering would go away. We're missing the joy of God's promises as we submit to His will. we got to obey to enjoy the promises. He goes on. Verses 37 and 38, he again gives us a quote. These two quotes come from Isaiah and then another one from actually Habakkuk. So the first one he says, Yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. Now that initial quote from Isaiah 26, it just calls the attention of these hearers to the reality Jesus is coming back. 
Listen, you can think in your mind from time to time, why does all this matter? Why does gathering and celebrating who Jesus is and what he's done and all that he will do someday, why does it matter? Because he still hasn't come. Folks, he hasn't come for 2,000 years. It doesn't mean that he's not, right? What it means is the day is closer now than it was 2,000 years ago, right? It is. He's coming. He's coming. Are we ready? Are we ready for his coming? He goes on in verse 38. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. So the second part of this quote is about our faithfulness. It's about not shrinking back. It, it in essence, demands the life of faith. Living daily for the Lord. Living daily for Christ. By faith here. Realizing that, that everything that will be ours, we can't see it right now, but we live by faith. Trusting that all that God has said is absolutely true and will come to pass. But because there is this possibility of drawing back from faith, again, there is this warning. Don't draw back. Don't shrink away, even in the face of trouble. The righteous one instead lives by trusting the validity of God's future promise. God has promised, and I believe that. I can't see it today, but I believe it. Right? He finishes in verse 39. But we are not of those who shrink back. I love this. Because with all the warning and everything that he said, he literally now gathers this group in and brings them to himself and says, but we aren't the ones... We're not the ones who are going to shrink back. We're not going to run. We're not going to be faithless. We're not going to turn in unbelief. But we of those who have faith and persevere and persevere their souls. We believe, we are trusting, and we will persevere by God's grace. To shrink back is this stark contrast to drawing near. If we shrink back, it's a demonstration of unfaithfulness. It's a demonstration of unrighteousness. And it ultimately will bring the judgment, the destruction of God. Destruction here is a description of judgment. So the concluding encouragement by the preacher is that we, those of us who have faith, must persevere. Genuinely persevere. Genuinely strive to know Jesus. To walk with Him. To live in light of all that He said and all that He will do. This is one of the distinguishing marks of a true believer. They persevere. They don't shrink back. They don't run. No, no matter what the struggle, no matter what the offense, no matter what the trial, they don't shrink back. They don't deny Jesus. Hopefully as we walk through, you can see all the promises of God will be yours as you endure and obediently do His will. The truth is you can't do that today if you have never placed your faith in Jesus. You will not faithfully endure if you have never acknowledged Jesus is the only way to God. I believe in Jesus alone. I'm placing my faith in Christ alone to save me from my sin. You can't do this if you've never done that. 
The words were posted for the 18th Olympics at Tokyo in 1964. The phrase that was posted is the following. The most important thing in the Olympic Games is not to win, but to take part. Just as the most important thing in life is not to triumph, but to struggle. The essential thing is to have fought well. The same is true for real believers. You and I must faithfully continue to struggle against doubt, against unfaithfulness, against being overwhelmed, against the temptation to quit. And to be truthful, I think for many of us, this is the toughest reality. The toughest hurdle for us is this. We, genuine, we genuinely believe that there will come a point that we no longer struggle on this earth. We, we really do look and think in our minds, there's going to come a point where I'm no longer faced with hardship. I'm no longer got this suffering or this issue or this problem, whatever it is. And because of that, we're tempted to be discouraged and overwhelmed and kind of beside ourselves when we struggle, when we suffer. Folks, the truth is, the reality is, this side of heaven, there is no such end in sight. But, but, you say that's terrible news. Well, I know if you were looking for an end, yeah, it is terrible news. But here's the reality. The reality is God gives us grace. There's strength available for you. As you serve, as you walk, as you strive to know the Lord, there is grace available for you. And folks, think about people in our Bibles like the Apostle Paul. We're going to look at the chapter that has been coined, the Hall of Faith, beginning next week. People who suffered, people who struggled, people who were striving and certainly didn't have all that you have to know God. And yet... They persevered in faithfulness. You see, the preacher introduces that idea to us, and all that will come is going to circle back to that, as it has since the beginning of the book. You can faithfully endure by God's grace. There is strength available for you. And the reason strength is available because the fact is Jesus truly is better. Jesus really is better. Jesus is better than anything else. Because of His finished work on the cross, you can have a right standing with God. You can draw near to God. You can sense, have the intimate presence of God because of the work of Jesus. And because of that work, Jesus truly is better. Do you believe that today? Do you believe that? Are you resting in that? Are you growing in your knowledge of Jesus? Are you walking more with Him each day? You know what? As human beings, that's not easy to do. It's not natural. It is not natural for you to be drawn to God. You need grace. You need help. So let's bow together and ask God for that help right now. Let's pray.